This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. I hope you're ready to study God's Word this morning, and if you are, take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 4, the fourth chapter of Acts. After a few weeks of being off from preaching, I'm glad to be back in the pulpit this morning with you looking at God's Word. And if you're tuning in for the first time with us this morning, I would point your attention to the description of today's video. There is a listening guide there you can download, and it will allow you to follow along with me in today's message time, and hope that will be an encouragement to you. Well, to say that a lot has transpired in the world over the last three weeks would be an understatement, right? A violent right-wing insurrectionist mob attempted to overthrow our federal government. A president was impeached a second time. We inaugurated a new president. And then in reaction to that, a violent left-wing mob took to the streets protesting the new president. Now, I've warned about this multiple times over the last couple of years, but it bears repeating this morning Politics in America has taken on a messianic tone. And people have always agreed in our country, but not like this. Politics is no longer the arena where good-natured people debate ideas and public policy from different points of view. No, today, instead, so many Americans approach it with literally a daily pursuit of life and death consequence. Politics has arguably become what some are postulating as being America's state religion. Our political candidates serve as the messiahs. Political platforms become the catechism. Talk show hosts and bloggers serve as the priests when they preach those positions And political parties become the ultimate tribes where people find their identity. Those who agree with us politically, we think, are the good guys advancing the righteous cause. And those who disagree with us politically, they are the evil ones advancing an unrighteous cause. Therefore, if all of this is true, we think the goal is to convert as many people as possible to our tribe. And on January 6th, the cult of American politics, at least in our day, reached its fever pitch. And I wonder if it's not going to get worse before it gets better. But the overlooked danger behind the idolatry of American politics is the way so many Christians in America have succumbed to the cult-like fascination of it. Christians of every political persuasion use the scriptures to justify their party as God's righteous vehicle through which God will advance his kingdom. But as we're going to see in our text this morning, God doesn't have a party in America. And we might need to just pause right now and just think about that. 
God doesn't have a political party in America, and it's not the calling of the church to attach itself to some political party in order to achieve majority status. So any social or political movement attempting to assume political power in the name of Jesus both hijacks the Christian faith and adulterates the holy scriptures of God. You see, the gospel mission of Jesus is not a political movement using earthly government as a means to achieve majority status. No, the gospel mission of Jesus is a rescue mission to save sinners like you and me, to be a redeemed people from every nation on earth to worship the one true God for eternity. So brothers and sisters, as we continue to think about our message series here at the beginning of a new year, as we continue to think about recalibrating and processing our growth points for faith in this year, I want to challenge you this morning to remember your calling and to remember who you are. I want you to remember just what it is God wants you to invest your time and your energies and your resources advancing in 2021. And I want you to remember it because on any given day, you are bombarded with messages from the left, from the right, and from the center telling you that your calling is something that it is not. Friends and family members, co-workers, cable news, social media, they all want you to believe that politics is far more ultimate than it actually is. That it's life or death importance on any given day. Therefore, as a Christian, they say it is your duty to hitch your spiritual trailer to some political semi-truck and ride off into the promised land. But don't be confused. That's not your calling. Missiologist John Stackhouse prophetically says it this way, and I would use his words to really frame our message this morning. When we, the church, are confused about who we are and whose we are, we can become anything and anyone's. So it's my desire this morning to remind you as a Christ follower whose you are and what you are. You ultimately belong to Jesus and he sends you out into this world as an ambassador of his world. And this morning's text is going to prove to be extremely relevant to our current context because it was actually a watershed moment in the early church. In Acts chapter four, the church is in its infancy. It's just after Pentecost, Thousands have believed the gospel of Jesus. The apostles have performed miracles and the religious authorities are taking notice of this new movement that is gaining steam. They were threatened by how many people were attaching themselves to the gospel of Jesus. So after Peter and John in Acts chapter three, 
Peter and John were two prominent leaders of the early church. After they healed a lame beggar, the authorities arrested Peter and John. They were arrested for healing a man in need. And Acts chapter 4 chronicles Peter and John's response, but it also records the young church's response. Now, Peter and John's arrest was one of the first acts of persecution against the young Christian church. But I want you to notice this morning, not just what they did do, but what they didn't do. The church didn't cry anti-Christian bias. They didn't personally attack the authorities. They didn't spread conspiracy theories and lies. They didn't join a political campaign and they didn't take up arms against the government. But what they did do shows to be both unexpected and radical in our current climate. So this morning, what I want you to see is I want you to see unexpected responses. We're gonna see six unexpected responses from the early church that still inform the modern church on mission with Jesus. And for that, I want to start in Acts 4. I'm gonna read the first four verses and then we'll proceed. Verse one begins with this. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Here's what this opening paragraph of chapter four teaches us. An unexpected practice from the early church that still informs the modern church on mission with Jesus. Here it is. We persuade others to believe the gospel not any other platform. We persuade others to believe the gospel, not any other platform. These opening verses show us that the church's mission is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who haven't believed or who haven't heard. Here, the text tells us that the religious leaders were bothered by the teaching of the resurrection particularly the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were, were basically the theological liberals of their day, and they denied most of the uh, miraculous events of that, that are in the, the scriptures. And, and the resurrection particularly was something that they adamantly denied, either Jesus' resurrection or that we ourselves would participate in a future resurrection with Jesus. And so the Sadducees were particularly annoyed by Peter and John's teaching. But simply put, don't miss what simply is going on here. The apostles preached a saving gospel in Jesus. And some people were drawn to that gospel and they believed. And others, including the authorities, they were repelled by it and they disbelieved. Moreover, the authorities were so repelled by it, they arrested Peter and John for proclaiming it. 
If you and I, if we ultimately belong to Jesus and our ultimate calling is to serve as ambassadors of his world, of his world in this world, then the question that we must ask ourselves this morning in our cultural context is what are we trying to get people to believe? What are we trying to persuade people to give their lives to? Peter and John give us a great example. And it really gives us our marching orders that we ultimately are to persuade others to believe the gospel of Jesus, the unadulterated gospel of Jesus. The church's mission is not to persuade people to a political platform or a political party or a political candidate. We ultimately want to persuade people to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But our human experience and the data suggest that the gospel isn't the primary message that Christians want to persuade others to believe. A recent survey conducted by the Public Religion Research Institute finds that Americans, listen to this, Americans are more likely to be unhappy if their kids marry someone from a different political party than if they married outside their religion. I want you to think about that for a moment. Mom and dad are less concerned about their son or daughter marrying outside of the faith than they are marrying outside the party. Brothers and sisters, we are in the clutches of an idol. We have come to idolize politics. And that idolatry has consequences on the spiritual destinies of our neighbors who don't know Jesus. So as you enter into a new year, it's not too late to adopt some different practices. Don't allow the political vitriol that so characterizes our culture to obstruct your neighbor's view of Jesus. Don't let your political rants push your neighbor away from gospel persuasions. Brothers and sisters, even on social media, what good does it do if when you post something politically, you gain 10,000 likes and shares while at the same time create 10,000 more degrees of separation between you and your lost neighbor. The neighbor for whom Jesus died. So the first unexpected practice we learn from the early church in the midst of persecution that still informs the modern church on mission today is that we persuade others to believe the gospel of Jesus, not any other platform, whether political or otherwise. Second unexpected practice. We show respect to the authorities even when they oppose us. We show respect to the authorities even when they oppose us. Let's keep reading in verses 8 and 12. It's the next day. The authorities stand Peter and John before the people and ask them, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now pick up with me in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, 
If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, among men by which we must be saved. Now the arrest and the trial of Peter and John was a seminal moment in the development of the young church. What would it mean? How would Peter and John respond? What, what would their brothers and sisters back home in their local churches, how would they respond? And the apostles' response here is remarkable. Now, their unflinching boldness in the face of adversity, in the face of persecution and arrest, is really clear and plain for all to see. But I don't want you to miss another instructive example that they give us here. Did you notice how respectful and how loving they were towards their opponents? To their persecutors. They addressed the authorities by the respectful titles that were due them. Rulers, elders of the people. We may think in our current context today, Mr. President or Congresswoman Trayan or Senator Markey. Lovingly, they go on to share the gospel with them. I mean, don't miss this. If there were ever a time for the church, for the apostles to lay into a diatribe against liberal bias or conspiratorial accusation, it would have been here in the early church. But we don't read them doing that. We in 21st century America have so much to glean from their example. We live in a culture where, humanly speaking, culturally speaking, it is in vogue to call presidents and governors and senators pejoratives. We listen and watch as talk show hosts assassinate the character of leaders before they ever take office and then continue to personally disparage them up to and even after they leave from office. A few weeks ago, the insurrectionist mob even sought to overtake the Capitol, kidnap key leaders, and even threaten to kill them while spewing vitriolic profanity towards them. And sure, most Americans would repudiate that extreme behavior and would never even think to participate in something that extreme and that unlawful. But friend, we as average Americans on a regular basis are guilty of participating in a more sanitized version 
of disrespectful and dehumanizing behavior and rhetoric towards those who are in authority over us. In some way, it's almost the American way. But just because in America, dissent is something that we have the right to, spiritually speaking, we must never allow our right to dissent to be a right to disrespect or disparage. And Peter and John gave us that example. Jesus' followers treat the authorities differently. Even when, don't miss this, even when those authorities might take away a freedom or institute an unbiblical policy or demonstrate an anti-Christian bias or even arrest or persecute members of the church. And we don't respect them because of the actions they take or because we agree or endorse their actions or policies all the time. We respect them because of the God-ordained function they hold in order to create an orderly society. God has wired culture and society to be orderly by setting people in charge and then we honoring those in charge. So even when you are at odds with the authorities, an unexpected practice we learn from the scriptures for Christians is we show them respect. And by doing so, you'll show the world that you actually belong to another world, Jesus's world. Number three, a third unexpected practice that we see here from Peter and John in the early church is we trust the sovereignty of God more than the severity of our circumstances. We trust the sovereignty of God more than the severity of our circumstances. Now, I want to fast forward a little bit in chapter four. Now, in a cowardly move, really, the authorities released Peter and John because they feared an uprising among the people. But they did release them. And as they left, they charged Peter and John not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And then Peter of John, of course, respectfully replied in verse 19. In verse 19, they write, they say, but, uh, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then Peter and John, they rush home. They go back to the brethren. They return to the local church. Now here's where it gets really good. This is why it was a watershed moment for the early church. Where, where would they find the local church? What would they find them doing? Would the new believers be cowering in fear because of what they had heard that their leaders had endured? Would they bolt from the faith because their beloved leaders were arrested for the gospel? What will Peter and John find when they get back to their friends and spiritual family. Well, pick up with me in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is good stuff. This is otherworldly stuff. This is unexpected findings. Now make no mistake, These believers in the first century world, their circumstances were serious. I don't want to minimize that on any level. Apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel. It won't be the last time either. The authorities had the power to arrest more Christ followers and even sentence them to death. Just turn over a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 7. Their circumstances were even severe. But don't miss the disciples' response. Their first response was not to cry bias or to blame the government or to disparage the emperor or to spread conspiracies. No, what do they do instead? They pray. They they pray to God, confident in his sovereignty over their circumstances. They trusted more in the sovereignty of their God than the severity of their circumstances. And to what did they ultimately appeal? To be confident in that sovereignty. God's word. God's word. They knew God's word well. Because in verses 25 and 26, they quote Psalm 2. And they quote Psalm 2 appropriately, and they show us that what the psalmist, the writer was ultimately pointing towards in the psalm, it's a messianic psalm, it was ultimately pointing towards Jesus. And what they read in Psalm chapter 2 is that nations and governments may plot and scheme against the Lord and his Messiah, which is exactly what these authorities were doing in Acts chapter 4. But the Lord himself is ultimately and sovereignly in control of all the events through his predestined plan. There was nothing happening to Peter and John and the early church that God himself had not written the narrative for. These first century Christians confidently knew that whatever happened, their God was more in control than what the next election might bring. I can't help but read these verses as an indictment on today's Western Christians. Christians of varying political persuasion regularly forget the key truth of God's sovereignty. And at the expense of being reductionistic this morning, 
Christians who lean more politically leftward often mistakenly view a progressive administration as the vehicle of social justice on earth, while easily overlooking the fact that God himself is the God of ultimate justice, without whom no justice exists. And Christians who lean more politically rightward often mistakenly view a conservative administration as their protection in a world of increasing hostility, insulating them from the darts of a culture that is increasingly hostile towards faith. But they unintendedly forget that it is the Lord himself who is our refuge and our protection and our strength. Believers from both ends of the political spectrum often fail to recognize that the Lord causes all rulers to come and all rulers to go at his pleasure and for his purposes. He is sovereign over all governments, over all rulers, and he is sovereign over all of our circumstances. Therefore, we have great security regardless of, our, of the security of our circumstances or the severity of our circumstances. And that's an unexpected truth in our world today. But the early church remembered it. The early church believed it. And if you and I are going to remember our calling today, we must follow their example. Okay, number four, a fourth unexpected practice of the early church that we learn in Acts 4. We fight our battles on our knees, not with the weapons of our hands. We fight our battles on our knees, not with the weapons of our hands. Now, in verse 29, the early church cried out, O Lord, look upon their threats. So how did these young disciples respond to the opposition of the authorities? They prayed. They prayed over their circumstances. They prayed for their accusers. They prayed for boldness to stay faithful to God's word, even in the midst of trying circumstances. They prayed. And their example is yet another challenge to our current situation. Their circumstances were serious. So are ours. Their threats were most definitely far more severe than ours, but American Christ followers today are not exactly the most popular demographic group in our culture. But we must be reminded that Christ followers... Don't fight battles with the warfare of the world. And the reason is because our fight is not ultimately against people. If you're a Christ follower listening to this this morning, we need to be reminded that our fight is not against people. If you're not a Christian today and you're tuning in exploring what Christianity is all about, you need to hear that Jesus has not commissioned his people to be at war with other people. Our fight is not ultimately against people. 
the friend with whom you disagree, the president whom you didn't vote for, the group or government who might oppose your faith, none of them is your enemy. Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It means we don't wrestle against people. We don't fight against people, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul informs us that the Christian's battle is not a fleshly battle. It's a spiritual battle. And since it is a spiritual battle, we fight with spiritual resources, namely on our knees in prayer. We do not fight with our hands, but we fight on our knees. We do not seek the destruction of others. We seek the salvation of others. We don't seek our neighbor's harm. We seek our neighbor's good. Our mission isn't to assume political power on this earth through an earthly king. Our mission is to live meekly, pointing others to the heavenly king, and his name is Jesus. This truth is important for us to remember this morning as the temperature continues to rise among the rhetoric of our cultural debates. And as arguments ensue and as tempers flame, as debate erodes and as passions intensify on all sides, brothers and sisters, Christ followers are not called to fight with the weapons of our hands. We fight our battles on our knees in prayer, primarily praying for the gospel to advance and for our neighbor's salvation. Number five, a fifth unexpected practice from the early church. We expect God to transform lives as we remain faithful to his mission. We expect God to transform lives as we remain faithful to his mission. Now, I want you to see a powerful connection in verses 29 and 30, okay? The disciples asked God to give them boldness in speaking his word, that even in the face of opposition, they would remain faithful to God's word and faithful to Jesus' mission and sharing it with others. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but don't miss verse 30. While we remain faithful in sharing his word, God continues to be busy performing wonders in people's lives. In verse 30, if you connect the two verses, increase us with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. Jesus. And Christians can debate exactly what that means, but don't miss the bigger picture. These disciples expected God to work. They expected God to empower them to be bold, while at the same time, they expected God to to transform lives and advance his mission through them and around them. I sometimes wonder if American Christians 
have come to live in such a pessimistic spirit of defeat that we don't really expect much from God, missionally speaking. I almost wonder if there are many in the American church who have simply written off their friends, neighbors, and culture at large to the gates of hell because all is lost. It's too hard. Nothing's going to overcome the darkness. Could it be that the American church has become so accustomed to playing the victim of bias or the object of consternation that we just want to hide in our basements or insulate ourselves among the people of God to simply escape ridicule or avoid discomfort altogether. I fear that American Christians are more concerned about protecting our First Amendment rights than we are about proclaiming our first and foremost calling. Speaking the power of the gospel in the name of Jesus and loving our neighbors who do not know him. I rejoice, I rejoice over the fact that God has and continues to change lives through the witness of Mill City Church. Now, I don't want for a moment to make you think that I think that Mill City is the perfect missiological example. We're not. However, while so many pastors and so many churches spend precious time in their pulpits and precious space on their social media campaigning for their preferred candidates and denigrating their political opponents, we are seeing right here in our midst real-life men and women come face-to-face with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And many continue to find that gospel irresistible. Just this last year, we've seen unchurched men and women surrender their lives to the lordship of Jesus and attach themselves to the gospel community of his local church here because they found Jesus' gospel irresistible and they found his church here to be very compelling. I think about multiple students who've come from completely unchurched homes and backgrounds who are now some of our most adamant and fervent disciple makers. I think about a young woman who invested her time studying and reading in spiritism, but now she invests her time reading the Bible for herself and with others. And I think about a man who spent decades in homosexual relationships, but who now wants to live celibately faithful to Jesus, who he has found to be the song of his heart. And in a time where unchurched young adults aren't even coming through the front doors of the church and church kids are exiting out the back doors, God continues to make a name for himself among the next generation through our witness. Church, guard yourself from the idol of the American dream and American rights. Guard yourself from living in spiritual fear and spiritual protectionism. 
don't live in defeat. Expect God to work in your country, but also in your community and through your church community to transform lives. Why? Because it's what God has always done. It's what he's doing now, and it's what he'll continue to do through the faithful witness of his people now and forevermore. Lastly, we ask God to make us bold without becoming brash. We ask God to make us bold without becoming brash. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for boldness and God answered their prayer. The disciples had heard of Peter and John's boldness before the authorities. That even in the face of arrest and a public trial, they did not recant their faith. And not only did they not recant their faith in front of the authorities, they actually proclaimed and shared their faith in front of the authorities in the midst of very unnerving circumstances. And so the church responded to that and prayed for boldness themselves. You see that? Boldness breeds boldness. We are bold as we see others be bold for the gospel. So they asked God to make them bold too. And then God answered their prayer. And you and I should follow their example. We should ask God to make us bold. We should ask God to make us bold for the sake of the gospel in our current context. But we need to understand what that means and what it does not mean. First, what it does not mean. Christian boldness is not Christian arrogance. It doesn't mean that you're loud. It doesn't mean that you're looking for a fight. It doesn't mean that you fight fire with fire. I fear that our American context has conditioned us to believe that being bold also means that we're to be brash. And I acknowledge this morning that there certainly exist instances of anti-Christian bias and even mild forms of persecution against Christians in America. And that surprises you? It's been the case for 2,000 years. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But if we're honest with ourselves, many times Christians receive opposition from the world not because of the offense of the gospel, but because oftentimes Christians are simply jerks. And that's not the Jesus way. So understand that boldness isn't brashness. Rather, it means that no matter the circumstances, you never deny Jesus' name. It means that no matter the circumstances, you don't shrink back and hide your faith. You look for opportunities to share the love of Jesus with others, and you look for opportunities to share the gospel with others. Whether you're on a mission trip to New Delhi or sitting with your friend in the campus, Delhi, 
you're willing to share the gospel of Jesus and the hope that he brings. Whether you are safely in your home or you're facing a persecutor's sword, Jesus constantly remains on your tongue and in your heart. This is what Jesus did in Peter and John's lives and it's, it's what Jesus did in the lives of the first century disciples who followed their example. And brother and sister, you and I now have all of their examples to hearken back to, to follow today. I know sometimes it, it seems like the scriptures are simply outdated, they're antiquated, they have no relevance for today. If you're a skeptic or a seeker today and you're wondering what this whole thing is about, I want to encourage you, pick up the New Testament and start reading. And what you're going to find is that the Christian scriptures is the document that's been preserved by God's sovereignty throughout the generations that describes the world as it actually is. It actually describes the, the, the things that you experience and you see. And I want to remind you and I want to remind our brothers and sisters in Christ who are Christians today that though we may be divorced 2,000 years from the circumstances of the early church, the early church has unexpected radical practices that still inform us 2,000 years later. And I started our time this morning by saying that if we forget who we are and if we forget whose we are, then we'll become anything and we'll become anyone's. I fear that in our current context, because of the fever pitch at which we've reached and our political dialogue and our political engagement, there are many Christians who are in the clutches of a political idol. Is it important? Absolutely it is. But it's not as important as we've been acculturated to believe or think. And today would be a really good day to lay down that idol, just like any other idol. Lay down that golden calf at the feet of Jesus and ask Jesus to change your heart, to release the anger and the bitterness and the vitriol and the antagonism that you constantly consume and feel towards those who think or vote differently than you. Because I assure you this, you will never see your neighbor your friend, your family member, you will never see them as lost, hopeless sheep without a shepherd as long as you hold them with consternation because of the way they vote or because of the ideologies they have. So let's lay down our idols for the sake of our own hearts before Jesus, but let's also lay down our idols for the sake of our neighbor. I want to pray for you today in the name of Jesus. Father, this is a hard message to start our year off with. But Father, we live in difficult times. And I thank you that you have not left us clueless. You have not left us in a vacuum to try to figure out how to interpret or live in such trying circumstances. My Lord, you know all the ways in which I've made politics an idol through my life. And, and you know the transformation that you've wrought in me over the last five years. 
And Lord, I want to continue to be transformed because as much as I love being an American and as much as I love politics and as much as I love American history, Father, there is a greater narrative and a greater history that you've attached me to. And as important as the things are here on earth, Lord, they're just not as important as we think they are. And so, Father, I want to be attached to that which is most important. And I want to bring a people with me. And so, Father, by the power of your Spirit today, would you speak to our hearts where we are, and may we relinquish the idols that we have built, lay them down at your feet for the sake of your glory, for the sake of our own hearts, and for the good of our lost friends and neighbors. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.